0: Why don't we pray? I know we've been doing a lot of that already, but there's, there's, there's more. Um, yeah. Father, we just acknowledge your presence and we just say we want more. We're hungry for more. We want to dive deeper into the realm of your kingdom. We don't want to be satisfied with what we know of who you are already. We want more. And God, even feed us salt and make us thirsty more. If the disciples can ask for faith, then we can ask for more hunger and thirst for you. Because you say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they will be filled. So increase our hunger, increase our thirst. God, increase our our desire for your kingdom to be manifested on the earth as it is in heaven. Mm. Yeah. And as we chat today, God, just let your spirit rest upon every heart, upon every life. Have your way, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So last week, and it actually was last week, not last time, it was actually last week. Two weeks in a row, baby, this is like, whew. um, Last week, I opened with the idea that the church is in this process of waking up to the idea that we're not just a social club, we're not just a get-together. You know, it's not, we're not just a social club with religious overtones. We actually have a commission to see heaven released and manifested on the earth. You, you remember that bit or were we asleep? Was... We're waking up. <laughs> okay, Our job is to see the kingdom of heaven manifest on earth. When Jesus prayed, your, taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he was teaching us a prayer that was in line with our commission. He didn't teach us to pray that because that's not what he wanted. And he wanted to just do this religious repetition of some prayer. As good as that prayer is. It is actually his desire that heaven would be manifest on earth. This is why we're praying for healing. There's no injury in heaven. There's no sickness in heaven. There's no disability in heaven. So on earth, we want to see that manifested. That's the idea. That felt like a good idea to me. Feeling a little lonely. Is anyone out there? Yeah, thank you. So what I unpacked last week and also in the Hub Chat the week before that was one of the giants that I believe is sitting in our promised land of heaven invading earth. And that was the giant of unbelief. And in the Western world, unbelief it's, almost, it's probably the most socially acceptable of all sins, if you like. Let me just call it that because Scripture says whatever is not of faith is sin. So why don't we just call it what Scripture calls us? It's, kind of, it's socially acceptable because we love to rationalise and we love to, we love to try and work things out. And if it can't be proven scientifically, we're like, nah, that, that, that's normal. And yet we're called to not be of this world. We're called to be people of another world. One of the things that I, I talked about last week, and I, I often go away going, I just didn't do that justice. <laughs> you know, there was more. I, I want to make a summary statement around um, one of the things I talked to was when, when things don't work out the way we want and we get disappointed with God, the way that that leads to unbelief, the path to unbelief from disappointment is offence at God when we get offended at what he did or didn't do. So Mark chapter six, when we looked at um, the the example where Jesus was at Nazareth and he was amazed at their unbelief, he could only do a few miracles. It actually says in there, you know, aren't his mother and his brothers with us? And then it said, um, and they took offense at him. So we see really clearly this link, link between offense at God and unbelief, which is why it is so, so important that we get good at processing our heart, at at processing our disappointment, at processing healthily the times when God, you say in your word that if we ask and if we do this, then you will do that. And I did that. I did everything I knew to do and nothing happened. Am I the only one that's ever had that happen? I've had it happen publicly lots of times. (laughs) Okay, Not the only one that has had this happen, right? We all all have it. We, 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 We experience disappointment. But when we don't process that in the presence of God, it leads us to be offended at him, to be offended at what he didn't do. And it's almost like we put him on trial. And we gotta understand in this life that he is never on trial. We are. God is never on trial. We are. And when we don't process our disappointment in the presence of God, it leads us to offence. And that is the birthplace of unbelief. And then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of, oh, look there, it didn't happen again. It didn't happen again. It didn't happen again. And unbelief just gets reinforced. But where it started was, I didn't process my heart in his presence. Because when I process my heart in his presence, it leads me to a place of comfort and it leads me to a place where my heart can engage and come alive again and that is the essence of trust trust only gets put on trial when i don't understand when something didn't work out the way i didn't the way the way it didn't work out the way i thought and it is our ability to embrace mystery and trust him that is the essence of childlike faith So I want to encourage us continually, and like we, we talk about the heart journey all the time, You know, we, we, and we will not be changing the subject anytime soon, is if you're carrying disappointment, if you've experienced loss, if you've experienced stuff where you're like, God, where the heck were you? You said this, but I experienced this, to bring that into his presence. When we lost my dad, I remember it was one of the times where I felt his presence so closely, yet I was living in this thing of... My dad had actually been healed some months before. Like, we actually had a doctor's report that said no evidence of disease. He had brain cancer. Um, and then six months later, he was gone. That's a little confusing and, and, and extremely disappointing. But in those moments, one of the things that was the determination of my heart is I'm not putting God on trial here. I don't get it. I don't like it. But God, I choose to trust you. And in that place, I found a peace and a comfort in his presence that's really difficult to find at any other place and any other time. Now, that's not even the subject of today's message. I just wasn't happy with how I landed last week. Um, and there's about another six messages to come on that subject, but that is not for right now. But just, I just want to keep encouraging us that if you've been alive longer than 20 minutes, you've probably got some disappointment. You've probably had some times where stuff didn't work out. And you're like, God, what the heck? So much of the Psalms is David going, what the heck? But you watch him bring that into the presence of God and process that through. And he always comes out the other end in worship. But I always say he wouldn't have come out the other end in worship if he didn't start with authenticity at the beginning of going, God, I'm confused, I'm hurting, I'm broken, what the heck? but he brings his heart into the presence of God and exits out in worship. And that I believe is, is a key for us. Otherwise, we will shut down the presence of God and then complain that he's not doing anything. All right. So I said there were two giants in the land. One was, one was unbelief, the other was Orphanitus, And that's the one I want to pick up on um, right now. If you happen to have a Bible with you, which I would always encourage you to do, um, 1 Corinthians chapter four, if you want to open up there. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll pick up in verse, around verse 14 in just a moment. So when I'm talking about orphanitis, it's it's a word that somewhere between me and Phil Mason and probably a thousand other people, it's a word that we've kind of come up with to describe the condition of in the spirit being an orphan. What do I mean by an orphan? An orphan is one who is experientially disconnected from the love and the heart of the father pure and simple. I might know it up here, I might know it in my head, I might have a theology, I might even have amazing theology, but when I've never actually experienced his love as a tangible experience in my heart, that is the essence, that that is the birthplace of of orphanhood and orphan behaviour. And um, many of us have grown up in churches that actually don't embrace the experiential side of the kingdom. And As a result, we never learn in our formative years of discipleship actually how to open our hearts and come into the presence of the Lord and actually experience Him. Yet it is the most foundational part of our discipleship. I've been up six minutes and I haven't actually touched the script at all yet. This is a problem. Hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put out a heresy, but you've probably heard it before, except you'll, you'll, it's not actually, but it, it sounds like it. I, I want to suggest that the cross actually isn't the centerpiece of the gospel. Now, in the environment I grew up in, that's a big ouch. <laughs> that, that, that's an ouch statement right there, that the cross is not the centerpiece of the gospel. Now, don't hear me say the cross isn't important. We're all stuffed without the cross. Let's be clear about that. But what preceded the cross John 3.16, what does it say? What does it start with? Thank you, Lynn. For God so loved. There is the centerpiece of the gospel right there. For God so loved is what led to the cross. But the centerpiece of the gospel is the heart of the Father. For God so loved, out of that he gave. And therefore, the most foundational experience, any one of us, every one of us need is to find that experiential connection with the love of the Father. First time this ever happened for me, Um, I was 18 years old, I hadn't long been filled with the Holy Spirit, Um, that happened on October 13th 1991, which is actually my wife's birthday who I wasn't married to when I was 18, Um, that took another nine years after that, Um, but October 13th is a good day in my life, it's my wife's birthday but it's also the date I got filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, Kind of ruined my study plan for the HSC, because I was doing the HSC at the time, and I was very distracted on things non-study because this new experience of the kingdom that I'd come into was just... It was so very cool. It was so unbelievably cool. Caused a lot of issues around my life, but that's another story. That's for another time. Um, It was... About three months later, lucky it wasn't more than that because I was going to run out of fingers and I haven't, yeah. um, it was about three months later, um, I was on a beach mission up in Foster and I, um, some of you may have heard me tell aspects of this story before but um, I went to a Christian Outreach Centre church and if you know anything about the Christian Outreach Centre movement, they just love the power of the Holy Spirit, they are just like, like every meeting is just wipe out zone, it's, it, it's really cool. I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> and so, what, so we were on beach mission for... Did any of you, how many of you have been on beach mission? You would... Did you go, You never went on beach mission. Yeah, Margaret would have a hundred times. Yeah, Kel did. So you would go from Boxing Day morning through till... For about 10 days, I think it was typically, to just after New Year. And they're you know, all over New South Wales. It was a thing run by Scripture Union. Um, and I ended up on a beach mission with a bunch of spirit-filled freaks. And I say that as affectionately as possible um, because I I, I dearly, dearly love these people. It's just that being around people like that as a regular thing was a bit of a new experience for me. Um, I'd grown up with something a little different to that. Lots of passion and lots of engagement and lots of hunger to learn and grow. Just just not the way these people did it. Anyway, um, when Sundays came, we always got to go visit a church. And we kind of, sort of, rostered it around so that people were looking after base and everything. And so I, I ended up at the Christian Outreach Centre Church, and I thought, oh, this will be good. This will be fun. Whew, did I have no grid for uh, what, what happened that day? This was at Tunkari, Tunkari Christian Outreach Centre, um, and I was there a couple of times. So I'm going to get, I possibly will get some of the pieces mixed up. But what ended up, where, where it ended up, is at the end. Um, the the husband and wife pastoral team, and it was the wife that preached, and she was phenomenal. She was she had both an incredible teaching gift, but she knew how to release the power of the Holy Spirit. And um, in the middle of the service, I was kind of there minding my own. Well, I was sort of minding. My own. I was worshiping. I was having fun, and something just came on me that absolutely undid me. I had no idea. I had no grid for what happened in this experience I was there worshipping and all of a sudden my eyes are leaking there is snot coming out I you know I'm just I'm bawling my eyes out and I'm thinking what is going on here and um, there are a few things I I had lost a close friend a few months before and I'm thinking well maybe this is grief coming out and like I just I didn't quite understand the level of emotion that I was experiencing but it kind of felt good and I didn't want it to stop but it was weird and it's and, um, and then I'm in the middle of this and someone comes up behind me, a lady comes up behind me, taps me on the shoulder. Now she wouldn't have been able to see the rivers that were flowing forth, henceforth from my face because she, she came from directly behind me. Uh, and she just came up and she gave me a prophetic word that just went right right in here. And we sat down and kind of talked and, and she said, I could just see that this, the spirit of God was all over you. And I'm like, whew. Okay, well, that's what that was. Okay, because I'd never had an experience like this before. And it absolutely, absolutely undid me. Like, it it was a turning point in my walk with God because somehow no one could convince me that I wasn't loved by the Father. It's like, I, I felt like I was so in his heart that he was so real and... Like I was his favorite. Like I just knew it. Like I just. That doesn't mean all of you aren't. But um, at that moment, that 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 was my experience. And for the rest of that beach mission, people kept on saying to me, "What has happened to you? There's something. There's a light in your eyes." Like and I'm like, I, I don't know. I just know that God loves me. Like it is. It, 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 and. Like I said, it was something I didn't want to stop, but it was completely undoing and unraveling all at the same time. And I don't know how else to describe it. But what I know is that from that moment on, my walk with God changed because no longer was I trying to perform and hoping that everything I was doing was okay with God. All of a sudden I was immersed in his love and it didn't seem like there was anything I could do to get my way out of it. Even if I wanted to, but I didn't want to. That... That I've later come to understand is what Paul described in Romans 8 as the spirit of sonship or the spirit of adoption. It's the same spirit that came on Jesus after his baptism and you saw the spirit descend upon him like a dove and a voice comes from heaven and says, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. That was the experience that I had. I had this, it wasn't just a voice that I'm like, wow, that's an interesting voice. It came with an experience of You are my son, and I am so pleased. Like, you are the delight of my heart. You are the apple of my eye. And I'm going to lose it soon now. Um, it, It wasn't until I actually became a parent that I had a grid for that kind of love and being able to give that out, but I knew I was on the receiving end of something like that. That is the spirit of adoption, because what Paul says in Romans 8, and he says it again in Galatians chapter 4, is that is the spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. And many of you have heard this before, The Abba um, in Hebrew is that innocent heart cry of Daddy. It, it, it's that, um, it's what Nathan sounds like when I rode home from a business trip. Was it the last trip I was on? Um, yeah, the garage goes up, I wall on the door, and I hear upstairs, Daddy's home! And I'm like, it's, it's like, that's one of my favourite voices on earth. Um but um, that, that's the kind of thing, it's this anticipation, excitement of, I know I'm about to be embraced. I know that, that I am about to walk into the safest, happiest place in my life. That, that, that's, that's Abba. It, it, it's hard to put words to it, but this is what little Jewish boys call their daddy. the spirit of adoption Romans 8 by which we cry abba father in other words this is not just a, a theology this is not just a concept this is actually an experience we have not been given a spirit of fear but a spirit that makes us that, sorry, that makes us a slave again to fear we've received a spirit of sonship or a spirit of adoption by which we cry abba father it is that that heart to heart connect the experience of i know who my daddy is i know that i'm loved i know that i belong And from there I learn and I understand who I am. That is the birthplace of what we call sonship. Now, I'm using the language sonship just like in other places I was using the term the bride of Christ. So just to be clear, I'm using the word sonship and father um, because that's the word scripture uses and it's not meant to be gender specific as such. Um, Just like the bride of Christ doesn't disqualify, you know, those of us who are guys in the room. Um, So I'm going to use the language of father, son, But understand, Mother, do all of that still applies, just like I am the bride of Christ. So, now let me try and pick up in Corinthians. Because what Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and this is where I want to address this, this, this giant of orphanitis. Paul, in the book of Corinthians, was speaking to a church that was incredibly, in a city, sorry, a church in a city that was incredibly prosperous. It was a powerful city and it was a very decadent city. It was very wealthy. Um, so yeah, in the modern day, you know, Brian Simmons in The Passion, in, in his intro, he talks about it. He said, actually, I think I've, yes, here we go. Let me, read, let me read what Brian Simmons says. He says, it was considered a modern cosmopolitan city. Its people were staunch individualists. Note that. Their, be- their behaviours reflected this individualism. Their spirituality was polytheistic. In other words, they had lots of different gods. And believers accommodated the gospel in ways that made it palatable to the surrounding culture. Did you catch that? So they were highly individualistic. like, don't tell me what to do, mate. You live your life, I'll live mine. You make your choices, I'll make mine. And there were lots and lots of gods. I mean, <laughs> even in the Western world, yeah, it seemed, it's okay to be Buddhist, Hindu. It's okay to be just about anything else than a Christian, it seems, at the moment. Um, but the gospel had been watered down in this church in such a way that they were trying to make themselves palatable to the society around. Does that sound at all familiar at the moment? Four of you nodded. Awesome, yes, excellent. Okay, So this is the context to which Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And he's he's writing to a church that is behaving badly. There is a whole lot of really uncool stuff that's going on in the church at Corinth. This is a church that Paul spent about a year and a half. You can read that in Acts chapter 18. He spent about a year and a half um, evangelising, reaching people. A church was birthed. This is where he met Priscilla and Aquila, um, who are a husband and wife couple that you, you see in the book of Acts. You know, incredible stuff happens. A church is, the church is birthed in this city. And a delegation has essentially had been sent to Paul, who was in Ephesus at the time, saying, Hey, we've got a few things going on, Paul. We need your input. And 1 Corinthians, in particular, was the, was the first of Paul's reply to this situation. And what we have is a church that is divided, that is immoral, that is arrogant and proud. And they're descending into all sorts of different factions, uh, particularly between Paul and Apollos. All of that not, not hugely relevant, uh, other than to, to, to set a bit of a scene. And so what we see in um, 1 Corinthians chapter three verse 1, Paul says, "I brethren could not speak to you as spiritual people but as carnal as babes in Christ." Now in this context, babes is not like, "Hey babe, how you doing?" like me and Deb talking to each other. (laughs) No, is as in, if you're reading the NIV, it would say as infants in Christ. In other words, he's saying to the church in Corinth, you are immature. And as we follow through, we actually see what was at the heart, if you like, what was the cause of that immaturity that led to all of these varying different outcomes, the divisions, the pride, the immorality. And this is where we pick up in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 4. I only took me 20 minutes to get there, but we're there. Let's see if I can accelerate through the rest. (laughs) So Paul says to them, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. Verse 15, here's the heart of it. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. Catch that. Depending on which version, some versions say you have many teachers. Some say you have many guardians, many instructors. Um, The concept was uh, the word that is used there is essentially, if you like, the tutor that accompanied the who was a slave that accompanied the child to and from school and kind of made sure they did their stuff. So it was a functional relationship. And he says, you have many of those kind of relationships, but you do not have any fathers. And then he says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son. He will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in the church. So here we have a church in immaturity. Now, since about, I don't know, 27, 2018, I've been banging on, because I can't get it out of my spirit, about Ephesians 4. Um, which is that the job of the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers, and the evangelists is to bring the church to maturity. And it says, that, way, that we may grow up into him who is the head. Ephesians is one of my like, favorite books of all time, and f- chapter 4 is one of my favorite chapters of all time. In other words, it's the heart of the Father that we grow up that we become mature. And when we become mature, according to Ephesians 4, it says, we reach the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And if you follow that concept of the fullness of Christ, Colossians talks about the fullness of Christ that fills everything in every way. How many of you, um, any of you astronomy freaks? Um, and have been, I, I, yeah, thank you. <laughs> we always trade notes when eclipses are coming. We were talking about it last night. Um, th- this new telescope um, called the James. James Webb, thank you. Um, that NASA has that is giving us all these absolutely stunning pictures of the universe. And has anyone seen that? Anyone know what I'm talking about there? If not, you're missing out, (laughs) yeah? It's your lock. Oh, show it, show it, show it, Josh. Whip it out. Yeah, just just show it. That's that's one of the nebula, I can't remember which one, but um, anyway... The point I was trying to make before I suddenly go down the rabbit hole of really fascinating pictures of the universe is Christ fills all of that in every way, which means like there's no little gaps, no little crevices in the corner where he is not. That, that, that's the fullness of Christ. That fullness has been placed in us, but it often gets locked up in immaturity so that the fullness of Christ can't get out and be expressed into the world. And this is where Paul says to the church in Corinth, you've got all of these things, You've got 100 people that you listen to. And, yeah, and if it was in this day, it's like you've got 100 people you listen to on YouTube. But who do you let get close? Who do you let look you in the eye and go, what's going on in that realm in your life? What, what, what are you hanging out there with? What's going on there? It's, it, it's also the voice that, that actually pulls us close and says, hey, you're way more awesome than that. That was awesome, but you got a whole lot more in you. Come on, bring it. That, that's the voice of a father. And while you can learn lots of amazing things on YouTube and Bethel TV, and like, they're all awesome, I got them all. No problem with them at all. But if that's all we have, and we don't have those, those father-son, mother-daughter relationships where we can look each other in the eye, call each other out, hold each other accountable. And we often think of holding people accountable as as holding accountable for not doing stupid stuff. I think that's the lowest form of accountability. True biblical accountability is I call you up to the fullness of who you really are. I see you through God's eyes and I point to that and I draw it out. That that to me is true biblical accountability. It's not just like, man, stop licking rocks. Don't lick rocks, that's stupid. That's the lowest form of accountability. He says you have many instructors, many people you follow on YouTube, many podcasts that you listen to, but who gets in your face and calls out your immaturity? There are fathers in my life that um, have called things out in me that I would never have picked because my blind spots were too big. And you know the definition of a blind spot? You can't see it. I always think, yeah, I can see my blind spots perfectly. No, that's called deception. Where I've had fathers in my life that have looked me in the eye and said, Ferris, what the heck? What is that? What are you doing? Why are you, why, what are you hanging around with there? And, and, and it's not just doing stupid stuff. Sometimes they just, they'll walk up to you when you think you're having a good day and go, hmm, something's going on with you. What is it? And it's like you, you, you're leaking out more negativity than normal at the moment. What's going on? See, no YouTube video will tell me that. Sometimes the spirit can do that. But typically we need someone with skin on that's going to come and get in our face and go, hey, dude or dudes. (laughs) dudette. What's going down. Now, so Paul's answer was, I'm gonna send you a son. I'm gonna send you Timothy. I'm gonna send you a spiritual son of mine. In other words, I'm gonna send you someone who gets the spirit of sonship. And just like Paul fathered Timothy, Timothy is gonna father you. You with me? Now, I want to jump over to, and so understand, this was a key rebuke that Paul gave to the Corinthian church that was at the heart of their immaturity was you've got so many people telling you what, you've got many people that you listen to, many instructors, many tutors, but you don't have many fathers. He said, if you're going to grow up, what you need is the voice of a father in your life. Now, if you follow any kind of crime statistics at all, just about every form of violent crime, fatherlessness is um, implicated. The, the percentage of, of males who are in jail for violent crime, it's, it's, I, I'm not going to get it exactly right, someone else may know, but it's well over 80%, I believe, of people that are in prison for violent crime have either a dysfunctional or absent relationship with their father. Fatherlessness is implicated everywhere and fatherlessness, in the generic sense... <laughs> is implicated right here in their immaturity. Now, let me quickly unpack what what does the heart of a father and a son look like? And I don't have time to do it justice tonight, but I want to point you to the first seven chapters of Proverbs. Um, Proverbs is the most phenomenal book of the Bible. And... Um, I'm loving it in the Passion translation, Brian Simmons' version the Passion right now, because it just speaks it so clear, um, and it makes it so incredibly plain. There's just a couple of passages I want to highlight real quick, pull out a couple of key traits, and then I want to bring us into land. So this is um, Proverbs 1, 8 and 9. And what I want you to listen for as I read these is what is the nature of the heart of a father and what is the nature of the heart of a son in these passages? So Proverbs 1, 8 and 9. Pay close attention, my child, to your father's wise words and never forget your mother's instructions. For their insight will bring you success, adorning you with grace-filled thoughts and giving you reins to guide your decisions. And then if you read down to, uh, to the end of verse 19, it starts to pour out this advice, like when peer pressure compels you to go with the crowd, sinners invite you to join in, simply say no, and so on it goes. And it starts unpacking the advice. But at the beginning, you see the heart of the Father, in this case, in Proverbs, which is written by Solomon, the wisest man, on the, the wisest man other than Jesus to ever walk the earth, to say, pay attention, pay attention. This is important. But in the heart of the son is this open heart to receive. And if you understand, the book of Proverbs is written that we might reign in life. This is a Proverbs 1.1 in the Passion. It says, Here are kingdom revelations, words to live by, words of wisdom given to empower you to reign in life. Is that attractive to anyone? Anyone want to reign in life or would you rather be a victim? What do you reckon? Well, that was profoundly underwhelming. Do, do, do you want to reign in life or do you want to be a powerless victim? Rain. Rain. Thank you. Okay, reign. Yes, not, not reign as, <laughs> as in conquer, be victorious. Reign like a king reigns. So that is the purpose of the book of Proverbs written by largely by Solomon to his sons so that they will know the, the, the success that he knew. Now let's jump to chapter two, Proverbs two. In fact, the first seven chapters of Proverbs begin with an exhortation. My son, listen, my son, listen to my instruction. So chapter two, um, verse one, it says, my child, will you treasure my wisdom? Then and only then will you acquire it, and only if you accept my advice and hide it within you. Will you succeed? I love that language. It's not just, okay, yeah, I'll give that some thought. It's actually accept it and hide it within you and put it in your heart. Meditate on it, go over it. And it says, so train your heart to listen when I speak and open your spirit wide to expand your discernment, then pass it on to your sons and daughters. So you have this heart of a father coming down, saying, wanting to be received by a child in such a way that that child grows up to become a father who repeats the cycle again. Yes, verse three, yes, cry out for comprehension and intercede for insight. For if you keep seeking it like a man would seek for sterling silver, searching in hidden places for cherished treasure, then you will discover the fear of the Lord and find true knowledge of God. Wisdom is a gift from a generous God and every word he speaks is full of revelation and becomes a fountain of understanding within you. For the Lord has hidden storehouses of wisdom made accessible to his godly ones. If you understand wisdom, I always grew up with wisdom, thinking wisdom's this boring thing. Like, you know, it's war, if something's wise, it's usually probably safe and boring. And I probably wasn't the safe, boring one. who I, I liked adventure. I liked to push the envelope just a tap. <laughs> Um, But if you understand wisdom, if you go to Proverbs 8, essentially wisdom is the party animal of heaven. It's actually the person of the Holy Spirit. And wisdom, it says, I wisdom was there when the world was created. So wisdom is actually the creative power of God. Don't have time to establish that fully, but wisdom is the creative power of God. And so when we're operating in the wisdom of heaven, we will be inventing things. We will be looking at, we'll be finding new ways to do things. We'll be finding new technologies. We'll be finding the answer to the energy crisis. That's true biblical wisdom. It's not boring and safe. It's anything but. Um, Verse 10, when wisdom wins your heart and revelation breaks in, true pleasure enters your soul. If you choose, I love this, if you choose to follow good counsel, divine design will watch over you and understanding will protect you from making poor choices. Whoa, that is so cool. I've made some poor choices. Actually, I was just starting to think of some of them coming flooding back. I remember one we made that involved getting air. Anyway, that's another story. For another time... <laughs> um, I would like to have been protected from, uh, thankfully it didn't go bad, but oh boy, could it have. Um, (laughs) Wisdom will protect you from making bad choices. Now, let me go to chapter three quickly. Chapter three of Proverbs, verse one. My child, if you truly want a long and satisfying life, never forget the things that I've taught you. Do you see the heart of the Father here of saying, hey, I've learned some wisdom in life and I, I wanna break off a piece of my heart and sew it into you so that you grow up and things go well. Then you will have a full and rewarding life. Hold on to loyal love and don't let go. Be faithful to all that you've been taught. Let your life be shaped by integrity with truth written upon your heart. That's how you will find favour and understanding with both God and men and you will gain the reputation of living life well. Is that interesting to anybody? And then the the verses pour out a whole lot of incredible wisdom. So I want to encourage you, go, go and pour yourself into the first seven chapters of Proverbs because it is just so full of incredible stuff. I mean, the whole book is good, like the Bible, but that in particular. So the son heart, the father heart. What you see poured out in those chapters, in the heart of the son, you see this posture of humility, this openness to receive and the father exhorting the son, hey, have an open heart to receive wisdom. That is the heart of a son is I'm looking, I'm looking for mature, wise people that treat my heart well, that will speak into my life and call me up into maturity. Yet fathers are confronting figures because they don't let you get away with silly stuff. They don't let you get away with immaturity. I remember you know, one key spiritual father in my life, one of the things I said to him as a thank you is you called out immaturity in me. You wouldn't let me get away with some of the childish things that no one else had ever spoken to. There's an open heart to receive and grow and there's a, there's a posture of honour toward that. This is the heart of the son, this posture of honour towards those who are further down the track in the journey. and And this is the interesting one is the openness to being disciplined and corrected. How many love that? (laughs) It's so unfun. Discipline and correction sucks dirt as an experience. But it is so critical in our growth and formation and development. When someone gets in our grill and says, hey, I think we're past that stuff. I think we're past chucking tantrums and now we actually need to lean in and actually talk honestly about what's going on. So in the heart of a son, we have this openness to discipline and correction. So that's the posture of all of us as sons is, is my heart open to receive? Am I willing to let others speak into my life? Am I willing to let my heart and my character be shaped by another? And then the heart of the father, And these are the people that you want to trust. The heart of the Father is the one that desires the best for you and sees you through the eyes of God. They don't see you according to the stupidity. They actually see you according to the eyes of God and they call you up into that. And one of the biggest things, and we've been bouncing this around as as hub leaders over, over the last couple of months, is one of the key things in the heart of a Father is, I have space in my heart for you. I have space in my heart for you. In other words, I I adopt you in the spirit in such a way that when you're around me, you will feel loved, you will feel protected. You might feel confronted at times as well. You might notice, you know, me getting your grill, but you will feel loved, you will feel protected, you will feel called up. The heart of a father is one who breaks off a piece of their life and sows it into the life of another that they may benefit, that they may grow. Now, This is such a different paradigm. This might sound like really obvious, yeah, but our whole paradigm as church, as church in the West, has been built around programs, events, and tasks, not around fathers and sons and mothers and daughters. We've got this program we wanna run to reach the world. We need six people to do this, this, and this. We're gonna roster this and we're gonna do that. There are all these tasks that need to be done. Get on board with the vision, people, come on. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Lots of tasks, lots of events, lots of things to do. Now, in a family, there's stuff to do. Someone has to peel the potatoes, right? In a family, there is stuff. You like to do that, Benny? You're forced to feed it. Anyway, good son. Someone has to peel the potatoes. Someone has to take out the trash. You know, like, that's you too. Awesome. Love your work. Sometimes. Sometimes. (laughs) It, It doesn't mean there aren't things to be done, but it's not... Like, the focus of our family is not, is the trash taken out? Most days. (laughs) Every now and then it gets front and (laughs) centre. Oh boy, I can remember waking up in the morning and hearing the beep, beep, beep of the truck and going, I don't think I put that out. (laughs) I now have a reminder set. (laughs) And now, even when I'm away, because of the reminder, I ring up and say, hey, do you remember the rubbish? See, this can happen. It doesn't mean the task doesn't matter, but it's not the focus. Like you're getting the idea before I completely lose the plot. Almost there. This is such a culture shift for the Western church because family is confronting. Task is not. It might be hard work and it might be, you know, gritty and all of that, but... There is nothing more confronting than someone who loves you deeply that gets in your grill and says, hey, I think we've got some growing up to do there. Sometimes what's really confronting is how much someone loves you and and someone just won't let you alone, even when you're in your worst and feeling rejected and hopeless and they're like, I'm not going anywhere. Both confronting and downright annoying because sometimes you just want to go off in a corner and huff by yourself. Maybe that's just me, but you're getting the idea? This is such a paradigm shift for the church because we're based around events, we're around programs and churches that do that, particularly through COVID, really found it tough. I'm so glad that we spent a couple of years really digging deep into family and relationship before that happened because we've come through okay, we're still alive, we're still here to tell the story. It wasn't the funnest journey on earth. The outcome of this, as I said before, is that we become mature and step into the fullness of Christ. And that that fullness is pretty epically huge. Um, Hez, are you around somewhere? If you want to get ready to put those things up for me. The whole language of the New Testament is Jesus says to the orphans, come, and to the sons, go. He invites orphans to come in close to his heart. And he, he sends the sons. Now that that's up on the screen, I better read it. So this is a prophetic word from Nate Johnson. Nate Johnson is um, a young Australian prophet, lives up on the Gold Coast. And to me, he is one person who is giving language to what God is doing in this season. Um, better is the wrong word, but just so profoundly right now. Um, and more so than so many that's um, not about comparison, but yeah, I think you know what I'm trying to say. So this is something he popped up last week. He said, this current shift we're in is leading us into true family. It's more than community. It's more than the gathering of the saints. It's the setting of the lonely in family and the rebuilding of ruins. Hold it on this one for a second the, the rebuilding of ruins sustained by being unparented. I mentioned this last week. We are in a pandemic of the unparented in the church in the West. And some of the stuff that we are seeing, um, some of the, the ruins that are falling down, some of the stuff that you're seeing splashed across the media is a result of an immature church that hasn't been well-parented. That is such a profound statement. Okay, let's jump to the next one. Thanks, Hez. Because we are going to need to be a family, a tight-knit army in covenant with God and as one. We have seen the fruit of an orphaned bride building empires and battling their brands. Whoa, <laughs> such a true statement. We have seen the showmanship and the gimmicks that have no power and transform no one. One of the guys I know in America who's pretty brutal, he says, it's the skinny jeans, the screens and the smoke machines. <laughs> it's just that it rhymes that I think It's cool. <laughs> Genes are... Anyway. Um, And we have seen the church disconnect, dissect, and suffer in silence. Let's flick to the next one. This is the last one. We have been silos and fishbowls and exclusive cliques while a hurting world needs nothing more than a safe place to come and fall in a heap. Grab that. This is the essence of family and community. We are a safe place where you can just come and fall in a heap. See, in the orphan factories, you've got to be pumped. You've got to be on fire. You've got to be, you know, you've got to be, it's performance. But the world needs a safe place to come and fall in a heap. But those days are coming to an end because God is pouring out his heart across the earth and calling mothers and fathers to simply set the table. And the lonely and the lost will come running. This is stepping out of orphanitis. This is not, I'm going to be involved in running a program and I hope we get all these people, got to administer it. Got to It's like, no, I have space in my heart for these people. We have space in our heart for each other to grow, to listen, to receive. The first time I really genuinely got fathered in the kingdom, it was terrifying (laughs) because it was so darn confronting. Because I was young and arrogant, thought I knew everything. And in just the most incredibly loving way where I kept coming back for more, this father figure in my life just poured into me over and over again, day in, day out, and helped me find who I really was. And in that, birthed the heart for this kind of environment where people can just come and fall in a heap and be hugged and be loved, and the table is set. Let's eat. Let's pray. Let's get you connected. Let's get you healed. Let's get you restored. Let's get you on the path to who you really are. Not from performance, but from love. That is the church of sonship. So, Father, we've got a way to go. We've got a way to go. But you didn't raise us up and birth us as a community to be an orphan factory. You put your spirit on us to be a safe place that the broken and the hurting can come running. And you put us in a place where you want us to grow up. Because when we grow up, we become the fullness of who you've created us to be. God, where we have resisted input, where we have resisted correction and discipline, where we have put up walls around our hearts due to fear that we're not enough, fear that we'll be rejected, fear that we're a failure, Jesus, we want to ask that you would come and be our defense, that you would help us to bring down those walls brick by brick and to allow you to be our defense rather than us be our own defense. God, where there's stuff in our heart that says, I've got to prove myself, I've got to prove myself, even to myself. (laughs) We just welcome the sword of your spirit to come and do some surgery. And may it be said of us that this is a place of many fathers and mothers and many sons and daughters. That we would truly embrace this paradigm of the heart. God, forgive us where we've pushed each other away. When someone wants to give us some feedback and we just react, forgive us. and touch those sore and hurting places in our heart that that thing was poking at. We just give you permission. You say, Jesus, that you will bring many sons to glory, not just many converts, but many sons to glory. Count us in. Count us in. And God, if any of us have never had that experience of just hearing and feeling your touch, that, that voice that says, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased, that undoing, melting, unraveling experience where we are loved so perfectly and beautifully and unconditionally. Father, I ask that you would release that spirit of adoption over every one of us, whether for the first time or whether afresh. For some of you, it'll be a, a dream in the night that will just you woke you'll wake up undone. For some, it'll be an experience in worship. For some, it'll just catch you by surprise. For some, it might come through a relational conversation with someone. But Father, we ask, we invite the spirit of adoption to come and rest heavily, heavily upon us and to marinate us. That at the core of our heart we cry, Abba Father. I know who my daddy is. I know that I'm loved. I know that I belong. In Jesus' name. Amen.